0: From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT. With your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and
1: Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 165 of the Killing It. Killing It! Podcast. I'm Carl. Joined today by Ryan and Dave, as always. And it's the middle of the year, and we're just cruising.
0: We are. It's times flying, and we're getting into nice weather, at least in the northern hemisphere. Like it's it's good time, good times. It is good times.
2: I was going to say, Dave, it is good times, but, hey, let's slow down for a minute and and, and have a deep conversation because these are the days to enjoy outside.
0: Well, so I'm going to pivot it by saying something nice about the weather and then something potentially not as nice, guys. What was the worst advice you've ever received? I have to say, so I'll start it out. The worst advice,
1: and this always just gnaws at me, is people who say, Before you make any big decisions in business, you need to study your competition. And in fact, one of my heroes in life is uh, Brian Tracy. And this is a big piece of advice that he gives. And it's the one thing where I think he's completely wrong. I think every minute spent studying your competition is a a
2: minute flushed down the toilet. See, ignore your competition, focus on your customer it would actually make sense. Carl does it better than Brian Tracy does, see? (laughs) Um, I don't know about that. (laughs) And then we'll go back and count book sales and whatever, right? Uh, I I will say, as a youngster um, coming up inside large organizations, I was given the advice to demonstrate your belief in the organization by investing your 401k in the company you work for yeah if you are not truly if you're not a true believer then you're not one of us and we'll know you have to put all of your trust in the organization or you're not really there um let's just say i started over on my retirement (laughs) after that organization
0: So you guys are too practical. I'm going to be the one to have fun with this one. And I'm going to say, when if the measurement is longest period of time where the advice has been bad, <laughs> <laughs> okay? My dentist, when I was 16 years old, said and noted that I have a baby tooth that has no tooth beneath it. And said, oh, we, th- you ought to pull this. This is going to be a problem and it's going to fall out. And I'm here to say I am 46, almost 47. And that baby tooth is still in my mouth. <laughs> it has not fallen out. And so there's no
1: grown-up tooth behind it.
0: There is no grown-up tooth behind it. Uh, it... I there's no problem it's still there there is no root it's not hang- like it is just hanging out there because it just hasn't fallen out but from a time measurement of 30 years that advice has been wrong <laughs> for the longest period of time that i can possibly imagine One day you're gonna bite
1: into a sandwich and you're gonna be like what is this i'm like oh the bastard was right
0: <laughs> but carl i've heard that so many times from multiple dentists over the past 30 years oh something and yes at some point they may be right but it has been consistently
2: horrible advice i think a mistake we make as a culture and a society is that we want to romanticize or elevate the the status of, of of doctors and dentists beyond what they are they are very specialized service providers. So, A, standardization is still a good idea, and B, got to remember the business model. What is it that they get paid to do? Oh, wait a second. They recommended me doing the thing they get paid for?
0: So no, I'm just just observing. Worst based on measurement of time.
2: When
1: I was a kid, my dentist uh, used to give out caramel-coated uh, candy corn or, or corn nuts, caramel-coated corn nuts for, for Halloween. So, you know. It was a little insurance policy for him. <laughs> that that that's what you call marketing. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, gents, are you still using on-prem file servers and VPNs to share files with remote workers? Ignite is a business-class cloud-sharing solution that works more like your on-prem server than other solutions. With a security-first approach to file sharing and collaboration, Ignite offers multiple options for sharing files and collecting files from outside sources, and do-it-all addressing data governance and compliance. Want to learn more? Check out ignite.com slash mspradio, and when you do, Tell them the guy's been killing it set you.
1: So our first topic uh, makes it clear to me that I don't always take my own uh, wise advice. The first topic we're going to talk about today is whatever happened to those people in the Great Resignation? Well, <laughs> we found them. Uh, turns out they got other jobs. Yes, they did. The part that we focused on was they left a job and we spent all our time speculating, well, what are you going to do if you don't have any money and how can you live if you don't have a job and all of that? And you know, we're all smart enough to say, well, maybe that we don't understand what's going on, but instead we took the ball and ran with it. So now what, what it turns out is going on is for the one of the few times in our history, the actual workers had the upper hand and decided, I don't have to work at a place where I'm treated like crap and I don't have decent benefits and I don't have decent pay. And I get abused by the, the system I will go find something else that pays more. And so many, many people who have been very reluctant to make a shift for whatever reason finally got fed up enough that they took this opportunity. And so uh, it turns out that many, many people, and we're going to link to an article about this, but many people left and really improved their lives quite dramatically uh, as a result of the so-called great resignation. Comments and questions?
0: Well, so I got, I'll dive in and go, if anybody's been listening to the business of tech, and I know some of you do, I've been pointing out this data the entire time. There's, there has been very consistent employment and staffing data that has shown that while the great resignation, you know, it has called, been called the great resignation, it is much more the reshuffle, replacement, whatever you want to look at it from those other re-words. This is about moving to better jobs. It is about worker power against saying, i'm not going to take that awful job when i have other options the key element that i want to observe to this that that i think is the is the trend is that too often we separate business from life and don't recognize that these are people that are making decisions as where work is one component of their life and we, the planet, or we, the nation, depending on how you want to measure it, have gone through a collective trauma. And generally, traumas are when you reevaluate larger things. And it was a disruptive moment where everyone could say, is this worth spending my time on? And am I getting where I want to? And if I immediately look around and realize, hey, wait, there's all these other opportunities, it becomes really easy to go there. And thus the transfer of worker power, transfer worker because you already had a tight labor market, got tighter, disruptive moment, boom, here we are.
2: See, and, and I do think one of the important lessons in the article that we've linked to, by the way, the sources, the New York Times, the grand old lady, uh, they they write very big and important things. And my first takeaway was, really? You're just noticing this. You guys are literally catching on now that there is a relocation, right? And to, to use Dave's word, um, it, it's it, this is not new. but But my big takeaway from this article was, that it affects literally every industry, right? So the, many of their examples, we spend all of our time in technology. Many of the big examples that you've heard are, you know, Silicon Valley, and whether it's the established market leaders or those young aggressive upstart SaaS companies and they're all just reshuffling amongst themselves, right? They are hiring each other's people away with more and more grandiose compensation packages and perks and benefits and whatever. And the examples that they're using are restaurants, pizza chains, local service companies, right? Uh, I think one of the big mistakes that people have been making in the last two years as this topic of the great resignation has has been blossoming out there is, oh, but not in my backyard, right? Yeah, it doesn't affect me either because I'm too small or I'm too specialized or what we do is different from what I'm reading about in the articles. This, this HR related problem doesn't affect me. Yes, it does. I don't care whether you've got two people or 2,000 people, those people are looking or if they're not actively looking for alternative employment they are being approached with offers for other employment I, I heard you know we opened with the worst advice that you that, that we've <laughs> that we've ever gotten I'm gonna go give some of the best advice that I ever received um, you know when you train your people you develop you invest in them they become much more capable professionals. And I've often heard back from people who, you know, if we train them up, they're just going to leave and go work someplace else. And somebody said to me one time, yeah, imagine what will happen if you don't train them and make them better. They'll stay forever and suck. Right? Right? Like, that's something that we have to be very careful about. If your people are not being approached for other working opportunities, it's because nobody else wants them. And that's not a good thing about your business. The other thing is that I think sometimes we forget that we
1: business owners have a certain mentality and we forget that there are people who will put up with amazing amounts of pain and frustration because the devil they know is better than the devil they don't know. And so they they literally fear making a change, even though they hate their boss. They hate their coworkers. They hate the job. They hate the monotony. They hate the pay, you know, tick, 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 tick. And so I think, again, uh, you know, this period in our lives is just the sociology, uh, um, you know, job and security plan for the next 20 years. But, you know, what made all of these people at once? Was it simply that there was a pandemic? Was it simply that uh, unemployment became so low? What was it that an entire generation of people, you know, just decided, I will finally make a change, you know, Um, because there are people who have been underpaid and hating their jobs forever. And there's many, many opportunities. I frequently find myself telling people, if I were you, I would just quit your job. I promise you, you will find something better. And in particularly when the unemployment rate is as low as it's ever been in memory. Um, But of course, I have a job, and I don't have to worry about it. And I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. And you know, I, I can make money even if I didn't have a job. I, I will figure something out. But many people don't have that sense of themselves. And so, what what caused them to
2: flip the switch? See, I honestly think that the answer to that question is awareness. Right? It's is that we have. And this could be just a side effect of technology and connectedness, that we are all now aware that there are other jobs. I mean, if you look at our popular media, the most common storyline ever is, take this job and shove it, I hate my boss, because they didn't think there was anything else out there. Yes, there are other things out there, and if you're not prepared to compete as a business owner, (laughs) you're about to lose all your good people. All right, let's move on to topic number two. And this one, (laughs) speaking of scary things about like maybe the human resources side, this one is really scary. It is the marriage or the unholy combination of AI and ransomware. Right now, we all live in a world of cybersecurity awareness. We do that for a living. So we spend a lot of time thinking about layered security and zero trust and all of the different things that we're doing. And from a technologist point of view, sometimes we think, all right, we're getting a head start. We're catching up with the bad guys. We are getting ahead. The article that we're linking to here from uh, the guys over at Protocol, um, it talks about the phenomenon of, okay, there's ransomware, and then there's automation, and then there's artificial intelligence in other words the actual machine learning and modeling and education that is necessary to do what is being done faster than and better than humans could ever do it that's kind of the the value proposition of ai Um, this is a combination of things that makes me go cold shutter down my back What's this mean to you guys? What are your thoughts on AI and ransomware?
0: Well, let's observe it's it's this article in particular is talking about the progression of investment that these organizations, particularly when you view them as organized criminal enterprises, i e. businesses that conduct illegal activities, when you look at them that, through that lens, they continue to take some of their resources and invest it in new talent. So, like a previous example, is they've seen the hiring of penetration testers who then focus on breaking the networks. The this is a th- premise that they can take the revenues that they are bringing in now, which continue to grow, and move forward and become competitive by investing in AI. So, to be clear, the, this is a theoretical premise, not an existing seeing-in-the-wild thing. But it is very logical to say if you're a growing enterprise, you will invest in the next thing to be better and better at your uh, at your offensive capabilities. That's the theory. Uh, my first thing is, I'm gonna, and I've, I've felt the need to say this more often, so I will say it here, is like, I really believe one of the biggest things that organizations can be doing is actively preparing not to pay a ransom. Yes. Like actively preparing, knowing we, we talk all the time about being hacked and knowing that you will be hacked, but the next step is predetermining I will not pay that ransom. I have made that determination and I will endure that level of pain because if I do not if I do not do that there is also a collective problem of i will in, make this problem worse oh and by the way the more people that that choose to do this the less they will make and the less profitable this will go and we can we can step aside some people are going to have to take the hit for the collective good right that's the way this goes and so that was where my my head immediately went to is, is i've been thinking a lot about the, the 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 i have made the active decision in my business that yeah I'm, i may have to go down like i might have to do it but it is the right decision, not only for me, but it is the right decision to actually position myself to not be hacked more. Right, well I mean, <laughs> it's, ultimately, it's,
1: it is the only way that you can make ransomware irrelevant, right? I mean, I, I have said before, like on the privacy front, we're fighting the wrong fight, you know, don't, don't try to keep the genie inside the bottle, make the data irrelevant, right? This is a very similar thing. If you say, I will not pay a ransom, okay, now let's start working on it. Get the tech team together and say, what does it take to not pay a ransom, okay? Well, it means that we need to have a great backup. We need a disaster recovery and we need business continuity and we need to plan on what's the first thing and the second thing, the third thing you do when you find out that, that there has been uh, penetration. So uh, I think it can be done. It is not free by any stretch of the imagination but you know a little ransom say only a million dollars <laughs> times a million companies pretty soon it adds up to real money i think it's interesting that they really do take this approach that the the bad guys here the the ca- gangster criminals that hey we're going to take a certain amount of this money we're going to hire people who are penetration testers is the example that uh, chain analysis gave we're going to hire penetration testers and then we're gonna you know, let them draw out a business plan for that arm of our organization. And then we're gonna hire people with AI to go figure out how to do this penetrations. It's just, it's amazing to be here. And we've all agreed before we started, like this is maybe the scariest thing going on right now.
2: Well, and because if you think about the architecture of cybersecurity, right? The good guys, not the bad guys. The architecture is that we look for patterns in the in the wild, we look for either viruses, other kinds of malware, ransomware attacks. We look for signatures, we look for profiles in the code for repeated attack methodologies, and we go, oop, there's one. Now we can write a defense to that, and then we can put uh, we can put a a piece of automated technology in place that will protect you from that thing. See, but the essential premise of AI is mass individualization. In other words, there is no pattern. It will take what is a protocol, a a potential cybersecurity hack, and rather than run it against 10,000 people to see which of them click and get taken advantage of, they will run that against 10,000 computers with the added layer that says, Well, what's the individual profile of each one of those 10,000 machines and what are they most vulnerable to and most likely to click on and have the bad outcome? And therefore, there is no mass market expression of an identifiable pattern in the attack. Okay, that's what's problem. You can't do that as a you and me individual human attacker because then it's literally like, I, I set up my attack vector, I do my research, I identify what your threats and vulnerabilities are, I customize my approach and either it works or it doesn't. Well, that's a really inefficient bad guy business model. But if you can eliminate that with automation and artificial intelligence, then literally the metaphor for our industry is no longer valid. There are no patterns to identify and protect against. It's all mass individualization, and that, that one makes me go, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also the case that a lot of the,
1: the you know, problems literally still amount to human beings making mistakes like they can they can find the people most likely to be frustrated or frazzled or whatever and attack them at the right moment at the right time but ultimately if you do the right thing 99 times out of 100 they all they have to do is find the one out of 100 where you did the wrong thing or you clicked when you shouldn't or you didn't engage a VPN or whatever it might be and they got ya and so at some level, it is a numbers game, but when there's seven billion people
2: on earth, that's a lot of numbers, right? So, yeah, we, we have to be right 100% of the time. They only ever have to be right once. And that changes, that changes the math.
0: I, and I, my, my little point, and I, I say it a lot, but I think it's important is we have to continue to reinforce the, the thinking that this is a very organized professional activity. Um, Ryan, even in your, you, you, made, you made the quip of, oh, it's a guy in a basement. Like, we have this stereotype of, you know, the attacker out there or the or the tech worker or whatever it is as something in their basement. Like, we need to break that down aggressively as technologists talking about this because it is not a vague theoretical thing. This is an organized enterprise that is, you know, even that, that the that Tony Soprano would be jealous of. Like it is, you know, because it is so well organized and so well disciplined. It is a business, and we need to view it as such. But we're out of time on this one, so I want to pivot us to the third topic of the day. Um, and I, this is one that, that's been floating around a little bit, but I felt like it was it was important with the release of the Supreme Court. Uh, draft ruling that has uh, revisited the Roe versus Wade discussion that action has brought some real light around privacy rights and personal data because as thinkers have, have give thought to the how data is used this idea that well if the if slash when if the law changes Data that's being collected now would be potentially redirected in new ways, um, and you know inevitably any data collected will end up on the end of a da- of a law enforcement request for that data, and so if you change the landscape on the law, and now make make an activity that was legal now illegal you have switched the thinking of the way the data would be used as simple as uh period tracking technology that's built into things like the apple watch all the way through uh you know your healthcare records uh that can be shown to you know uh, and you can actually make determinations about you know that that maybe an abortion has happened this is causing some revisit of that the idea of data minimization was brought up again. And, and, Jens, I wanted to sort of throw this out and say, you know, as we're revisiting this under the potential civil rights discussion, uh, and I'll link to the article for those at home, what would what say you in terms of, of the shift here on the thinking of The data?
1: interesting thing for me is that individuals still make decisions, and, you know, as we move to this uh, sort of like, you get to this era where you get to choose how much of your private data gets out there i have more and more apps that are saying do you choose to do this and do you want to do that and you know pick your level and all this and what i find is i pick a level that is just below what it should actually be in other words i then spend a week saying oh yeah you can have one more bit you can have one more bite you can have a little bit more because i want access to this stuff without it being a pain in the neck right and so we do. We ultimately trade the the ease of use with privacy. And so I'm giving up more and more. And you think I am unaware of how this stuff is being used? Take the average user, right? You know, and, you know, there are so, such amazing technology that uh, I think I mentioned that one time I was on my phone and it couldn't figure out where it was because I'd flown into another continent. And uh, it said, look, where we can't you know, geolocate you very easily, pick up your phone, push this button and then scan the horizon. And it has scanned like three high rise buildings and said, okay, we know exactly where you are now. And I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) right? So that kind of technology allows them to also look at the backgrounds in any video anywhere, publicly displayed on YouTube, TikTok, anywhere else, and know where these people were at a specific moment in time. People, clearly, people don't realize that that is going on, but it can be, and the future is going to allow us to look back and reconstruct more of that data than we can currently do. So I don't know what advice you give to people. Just don't allow anything or just give up. Like, it's, like those seem to be the two obvious choices.
0: Oh, I'm going to dive in because I have practical advice, and the, uh, the practical advice is call your lawmaker and let them know that you think there needs to be a privacy law. If you're an American, you do not have a, a federal privacy law that covers and defines this. If you're a European, you've got a whole set, right? And maybe you want refinement on it. By the way, maybe you're in Australia. Maybe you've got, like, you've got some, but, but Americans, you don't have one. <laughs> Only five states have even passed one at this point. So call your lawmakers and say, yes, you believe that there should at least be a framework like there would at least be an actual set of laws. I'm not sure that people in the
2: Europe would argue that GDPR has done them any good at all. but Well, not that they know of yet, right? And I think that that's the point. You, It's difficult to prove the negative, and therefore you can't say GDPR has made my life better because of the harm that was potentially available to you that has been prevented. That that's the that's the challenge right now. But I will the reason that I, I kind of approach it from that direction is I go I will go exactly to where the combination of the two of your comments takes me it is impossible to control the spread and application of technology in data science. Therefore, the only possible remedy you have is on the legal or the regulatory front. And as a person who has laughed at and rolled my eyes at virtually every attempt at at digital regulation formats that, that our country has tried to deploy, I understand exactly how futile and inefficient that approach is, right? Like, I I grew up in a world of every single regulatory compliance framework from before the days of HIPAA and before the days of Sarbanes-Oxley. And when the government would say, hmm, this data that that we are gathering, it has potential ramifications, dot, 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 we should make a law. And my comment has always been, Oh, please, please make a law, because every time the government does that, it becomes a cottage industry for technology professionals to A, decode it, B, implement technology to comply with it, and then C, provide the professional services of documentation to prove that, and by the way, guys, we always rant about uh, terminology and jargon in our industry. One of my very, very least favorite words that became a word in our industry, is the word compliancy? Ooh. Stop saying that. Right, that, that, that compliance is the word. You are either in compliance or you are not in compliance. There's no such thing as compliancy. And when you say that, what it makes me go is, uh, so you don't actually understand the regulation. So you're trying to sound like you do. Okay. So don't don't do that. the The reality of it is, again, to to just go back to the fundamentals of technology and the applications that we are using it for, the essential premise of data science is that it can, using machine learning and algorithmic formulas, identify unseen connections in readily available data. That's that's literally the dictionary definition of data science. You think you've not put anything out there, and I say you as the collective royal you, right? Everyone believes that they have not put data out there that could cause them any problem in the future. Bullshit. Everywhere you go, everything you do, every website, every email, every time you turn on your phone and it accompanies you into a place, every time you walk through the field of vision of a surveillance camera, you are being tracked and you think, "Eh, nobody knows what my patterns are. Every time we all roll our eyes and go, it's almost like they're listening to me. They send me advertising that's so accurate and on point. (laughs) chuckle, chuckle, they must be listening. Don't chuckle, they are listening. And (laughs) they didn't even need to listen to you because it's the triangulation of your unseen patterns that allow them to serve you up an ad that is radically accurate and on the nose, if you think that can't be turned around and used for nefarious purposes by people who have alternative objectives to you, then you are clueless. And I say that because you may be 1,000% in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade. You may be 1,000% against that. The data science will come for you, whether or not it is currently a political view that you support or do not support. This is why the only way to do it is on the well, regulatory side.
0: I, want to, I do wanna leave a point as we run out of time here that look, not all data collection is bad. And we do wanna have that there are instances of use of this Correct. kind of data that does result in public <laughs> good. And that's why there is debate to be had about where the line is.
2: Yes, correct. And, and we got to, you know, don't just take my doom and we,
0: we have a great
1: article linked here that talks about how, you know, you, you get video coming off of cars that are, that's being used by the police. And, you know, there's lots of practical world examples. The, the uh, Roe v. Wade thing is a bit of a clickbaity thing, but, you know, we're not above that.
0: Well, but it brought the topic back uh, right. around. So that's why it's worth, worth reading. Sadly,
1: that will do it for episode 165 of the Killing It
0: Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.